Well, we're looking at the Ten Commandments this morning as the Kelvis is read for us. And I want to start by uh, inviting you to think about a question. What does a candle mean? What's it for? We have a picture of a candle on the screen up here. Is a candle for celebration? Is it for romance? We're behind on our slides. <laughs> celebration? Romance? Religion? Uh, social action? What's a candle for? Well, it depends, right? It depends on the context. Unless we know the context, we can't say what a candle's for. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's the same with the Ten Commandments. That context is key. If we rip the Ten Commandments out of context and we just hang them on the wall, the wall of a courthouse, a courthouse, or <laughs> a school, or some of you recognize that school, or even a Sunday school classroom, if we just rip them out of context and hang them on the wall, then we can easily misunderstand what the Ten Commandments mean and what they're for. So my goal this morning is to put the Ten Commandments back into context so that we can understand them accurately and so that we can treat them properly. And we might be surprised at what good news the Ten Commandments actually contain. I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person who if you tell me I have to do something, I want to know why. I think I drove my parents crazy when I was a kid. So let's start thinking about the why question in relation to the Ten Commandments. So imagine a life where everyone was secretly longing to have your new cell phone. I wound up with Kara's cell phone this morning. It really wasn't. I didn't steal it. But, um, or, or they were secretly have, uh, longing to have your car or your house or your true love. Imagine a life where people regularly made up lies about you which ruined your reputation, and the, these lies ruined your relationships, your career, and, and they got you in trouble with the law for things you didn't even do. Imagine a life where you would often get cheated out of your money or, or get your stuff stolen, where your spouse was always cheating on you, where everyone carried a gun, and if you made someone mad, you had to worry they might follow you at home, follow you home at night. Imagine a life where your children cursed you and ran wild, and when you were old, they discarded you to die in poverty and loneliness. Imagine a life where no one ever got a day off. School was seven days a week with no vacations, and work was the same. <laughs> Imagine a life where people treated God as a trifle, and they used his name to curse others. Imagine a life, if you can, where people around you practiced a religion where they sacrificed their children to the gods. They lived in fear of the spirits and they had wild religious orgies and, and sometimes served as slaves or even sex slaves at some pagan temple in your community. Such a life is a life without the Ten Commandments. Some of us may not be sure we want to keep the Ten Commandments, but we sure wish everyone else would, right? The excellent Old Testament scholar and ethicist Christopher Wright suggests that the Ten Commandments, along with the rest of the Old Testament law, 
create for us a certain kind of world. A world with certain structures in place and a certain order of priority in preserving those structures. Most important is God. The first four commandments ensure that we that we know and honor God accurately for who God really is and that we don't get distracted by false gods that are not gods at all. Next in importance is society. The fourth commandment also ensures a just and fair society free from exploitation because there's a tendency in the world for the rich and the powerful to work the poor and the weak to death. But the Sabbath ensures that everyone gets a day off to rest. Everyone, even the slaves, even the animals. Next comes family. It was extended family in the case of the Israelites. In Israel, the extended family owned the land. They administered their own justice in many matters. They uh, passed on the knowledge and the worship of the Lord to the next generation. The family was key to the stability and the health of society. And so the fifth and also the seventh commands protected the family. Children were to obey and honor their parents and their elders and to care for them in old age. Husbands and wives were to be faithful to one another, to hold the family together. Then comes individual lives. The sixth commandment maintains that your life is a gift from God and only God has the right to say when it should end. And then comes sexuality. The seventh protects that, keeping it in its proper place within marriage. And last comes property. The last three commands ensure that property isn't stolen or coveted or obtained fraudulently by lying in court. Wright concludes that God's priorities for human moral attention are God, society, family, life, sex, property. He goes on, it hardly needs to be pointed out that in Western society, at least, modern culture has almost precisely inverted the order of priorities. Having built a whole ideological worldview on breaking the Tenth Commandment, it is hardly surprising that we have trampled over the preceding ones until the first is virtually meaningless. Remember Gordon Gecko? Oh, we haven't plugged in the audio. Oh, we did. Do you remember what he said? (laughs) Greed. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. That's the American way. We prioritize property, greed, and, and materialism first. We give our sexual urges free reign, whatever they might be. We demand our individual rights and freedoms. And given those priorities, it isn't long before families fall apart and societies decay and uh, busyness crowds out rest and, and God gets diminished or altogether forgotten. Right? Well, given this mess, let's put the Ten Commandments back into their original context, or context and see what they might have to offer us. First, let's put the Ten Commandments in their historical context. It, the Israelites had just experienced years of brutal oppression and slavery in Egypt. If we look at rights concepts again of how God means the world to be, we see how Israel had suffered 
a life in Egypt where most of the Ten Commandments were broken and the Israelites suffered the consequences. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god and he used his divine power to oppress the Israelites while the name of the Lord was neither known nor honored among the Egyptians. Society was arranged so that Egypt prospered while the Israelites slaved. There was no Sabbath for them, no rest, just unending toil and labor. The Israelites' family life was constantly threatened and torn apart by the harsh realities of slave life and, and Pharaoh's cruel edict to murder the Israelites' children. The Israelites had no chance to accumulate property. No matter how hard they worked, the wealth always flowed to Egypt. But now the Lord had saved Israel from all of that. With a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, God has set his people free. As we saw in last week's story, God had separated his people from Egypt, loving Israel and choosing them as his own. And he destroyed the Egyptians, setting his people free and, and making them into a new creation. We saw that last week that the Red Sea story contains echoes of the creation story, Genesis 1. In both the wind or, or the spirit of God blow over the waters... Um, God separates light and darkness and divides the waters and makes dry ground appear. God was creating a new people through the Red Sea. And now, just a little while later in the story, God continues the, that work of new creation by giving Israel Ten Commandments and other laws to form them into a nation. That's what's happening at Mount Sinai in the story of Exodus. Just as at the first creation, God had fought or, or had brought order out of chaos. So now God, through his law, takes this ragtag bunch of slaves and their chaos life of Egypt, and God recreates it, he forms it, he orders it into a safe and prosperous and just and humane life as a new nation. You can imagine then what a gift the Ten Commandments were for Israel. After serving the brutal king Pharaoh, Israel now gets to serve the good Lord. So Christopher Wright maintains the Ten Commandments are not so much restrictions as they are protections. Or as I like to put it, it's not so much that we keep the commandments, but that they keep us. All right, now let me put the Ten Commandments in the religious context. Israel was headed to Canaan. And that was a land well known for its darkness and depravity. Going from Egypt to Canaan was like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Canaan operated under a feudal system where harsh kings and overlords owned all the land and, and they leased it out to destitute serfs who worked it for their masters. And the religions of Canaan had nothing to offer to reform this oppressive situation. Rather, the religions just added to the oppression. The god Molech expected you to sacrifice your children in the fire to him. The worship of gods like Baal and Ashtaroth involved wild sex orgies where priests and priestesses were virtual slaves and served as prostitutes to make money for the temple. These gods didn't tell the people how to live. They didn't teach what was right or wrong. These gods were as sinful as the people. They were often fickle and angry, and, and you had to appease them, so people lived in fear of the gods. 
The gods of Canaan were part of the problem, not part of the solution. Next, we'll put the Ten Commandments in their legal context. The Ten Commandments are part of a bigger law code that God gave to Israel so they wouldn't have to live like the Canaanites. And this was a code not just to teach individuals how to be good, but to govern the entire nation. So the Old Testament law wasn't just religious rules. It was also the law of the land. A code so good and so sound and so righteous and just that most law codes in the Western world today have been deeply influenced by it. That's why if you go to Washington, D.C. and you look at the, the peak of the, um, the Supreme Court building, you'll see Moses and the Ten Commandments carved there right at the, right at the top. No other God had given his people a code like this. Most laws in the ancient world didn't even come from religion. They just came from tradition and custom. But Israel had a God who cared about them enough to teach them how to live so that things would go well for them. God gave Israel a law code to form a nation and to establish rule of law. Now, the the Ten Commandments stand at the beginning of this law code as a sort of summary and overview. They, They maintain pride of place. But that's not all. The Ten Commandments aren't all that God had to say to Israel about how they were to live. And you can't fully understand the Ten Commandments without understanding all the rest of the law as well. In fact, the Ten Commandments are so general that they raise as many questions as they answer. Do not murder. Well, what is murder? What if I kill someone by mistake or or through negligence? And if I do kill someone, what should my punishment be under various circumstances? Well, you have to read the rest of the law code to answer these questions. Much of the rest of the law in the Old Testament is case law. It fills in the details for us. It gives us specific cases. If this happens, then do this. It tells you how to handle these cases. And like any law code, the the case law can't possibly handle every possible case. That's why we have so many lawyers. (laughs) You have to derive principles based on the laws that you do have in order to guide you in how to handle the situations that the law doesn't cover. That's why God's word encourages us to meditate on his laws so that we'll gain insight into God's heart and so that we'll know God's ways. We'll know how to respond in each situation. All right, now let's put the Ten Commandments into their covenant context. The laws of the Old Testament don't stand on their own. They're actually part of a covenant. When a great emperor, like, say, Pharaoh, wanted to make a treaty with a lesser king of a small province, like, let's say, the land of the Philistines, they would make a covenant. These covenants were called suzerain vassal covenants, And the lesser king was the vassal who would pledge his allegiance to the greater king, the suzerain, who would become the protector of the lesser king. These treaties were common in the ancient world, and we know from various Hittite treaties that we've dug up through archaeology, we know what parts the covenants contain. There was first a preamble introducing the greater king, then a historical prologue recounting all the great things that this great king had done for the lesser king in the past. He got to showboat. And then there were the stipulations outlining the vassal's responsibilities to his overlord. This would involve swearing loyalty 
and paying taxes and tribute and uh, pledging military allegiance and support in times of war and other things as well. Then there were blessings and cursings. Blessings if the lesser king kept the treaty and curses and punishments if he did not. Then there were provisions for depositing copies of the, the treaty into the temple of the gods of each of the kings and to have them read periodically so the lesser king would never forget what his responsibilities were. And then finally, there were witnesses who would certify that the covenant was legal and binding. And you'll find all of these parts in the, in the book of Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy when the covenant is renewed. So in Exodus, the, law, the Lord is making a covenant with Israel. The Lord is the great suzerain. He's already done great things for Israel. He's rescued them from bondage. And now the Lord offers to make a covenant with Israel, to make a commitment, a treaty, to establish a relationship. The Lord will be Israel's God and will give Israel a land of their own and will protect them from their enemies. And Israel, in return, is invited to pledge their allegiance to the Lord. And they must fulfill certain stipulations. And those stipulations are outlined in the law part of the covenant. So the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament law are part of a covenant. And this has some very important ramifications. First, it means that keeping the law can't make you special to God. It can't save you. It can't make God love you. The covenant already assumes all that. Read Exodus. God has already saved his people. God already loves them. He's already... Um, committed himself to them before the law ever comes along, right? Grace always comes first. It's the only way you can have a relationship with God. In fact, when the law does come along, as we've already been seeing, it's just more grace. It's God's loving instruction, commanding a, a way to live which is best for everyone. The second ramification, because the law is part of a covenant, the law is only in force as long as the covenant is in force. We'll look at this, uh, we'll come back to this point when we talk about the New Testament. Third ramification, the Ten Commandments are not meant to be kept by everyone. They're meant to be kept by the covenant people, God's people. So we shouldn't be surprised when people who aren't God's people break the Ten Commandments. Whether it's a friend taking God's name in vain or a politician having an affair or a co-worker stealing from the company. These people aren't God's covenant people. And so to judge them by the covenant law or, or to wave the Ten Commandments in their face is not what they need. No, they need grace. They need the good news of salvation. Then they'll be enabled to want to find out how to please God. And Peter Enns, who's written what is probably the best modern commentary on Exodus, points out that when we teach public school children the Ten Commandments, like we used to do at least, we better be careful that we're not in fact creating a false religion. Leading kids to believe that what God wants from them is to be good or nice, or 
to be better citizens in some vague Judeo-Christian sort of way. That's just not true. What God wants first is a relationship. First comes salvation, then a covenant relationship, and then morality. So if we're going to use the Ten Commandments to teach right and wrong, we've got to keep them in that context in their proper place. That leads to our next point, which is to put the Ten Commandments into their narrative context. The commandments are part of a story. They're part of a story about salvation. The commandments begin this way, don't they? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Don't miss that line. That's hugely important. It reminds us that the Ten Commandments are rooted in a story, the the story of God's gracious saving work for a sinful, rebellious, unworthy people. First, God comes to his people and saves them from their bondage. Then, if you keep reading in Exodus, God provides for them. He feeds them manna and quail in the desert. He gives them water And he protects them from their enemies, the Amalekites. Only then does God reaffirm his commitment to them and invite them to commit in a relationship with him and to enter into a faithful covenant. Then he shows that he cares about them so much that he'll teach them how to live and and he'll form them into a nation and give them the blessings of living in a society which is safe and stable and free and just, and prosperous. Not like Egypt, not like Canaan. And so Israel will be like a candle on a stand to the nations. A light in the darkness of the world, showing all people how great their Lord is and how he teaches a better way to live. Well, let's finally put the Ten Commandments now into their New Testament context. How do we view the Ten Commandments in light of Christ's coming? After all, the Ten Commandments were part of the old covenant, and Christ has brought us into a new covenant, a covenant that we celebrate in the Meal of Communion in a little while. The early church wrestled through this question in the book of Acts of of the relevance of the old covenant today as Gentiles, who'd never been a part of the old covenant in the first place, come surprisingly to... um, be included in the new covenant through Christ. And the question is, do they have to go back and enter into the old covenant too? And the early church is definitive. No, they do not. And the apostle Paul is clear about this in his writings too. The new covenant has fulfilled and surpassed the old. And the stipulations of the new covenant are not spelled out in a code of law written on tablets of stone. But rather, God's law is now written in the new covenant on the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. The law that we follow in the new covenant is the law of Christ. We keep the new covenant by giving Christ our allegiance, by following him, by following his teaching. However, Paul continues, that doesn't mean that we throw the Old Testament law out altogether. Rather, Romans 7, verse 12, Paul says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The commandments are good for all the reasons that they were always good. 
They teach us what God is like and what God wants for his people. But the Ten Commandments no longer have the authority that they did under the Old Covenant to be a judge and a police officer to us. Now, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament law are more like a witness or or a wise teacher pointing us accurately in the direction of God's heart. The law points us in the right direction. It uh, teaches us um, the ways of God and it prepares us to understand Christ's teaching better and more fully. But to know how to live as the people of God today, we, we need more than the Old Testament law. We need the teachings of Christ. As we follow Christ, we more fully receive the gift of walking in God's ways and of fulfilling our calling as a light in the darkness. But the Ten Commandments are a good start. First, have no other gods before me, God says. No other God has your best interests in mind. No other God can save you as I have saved you. Don't divide your allegiance with lesser gods. Second, don't make any images of me. When you make an image of me, you diminish me. You put me in a box. You make me into something small that that you may be tempted to control. There's only one image of myself that I allow. And that's you. You are the only authorized image to bear my reflection, to show what I'm like. Be that. Third, don't use my name in vain. Preachers, don't use my name to build your career or your reputation or to line your pockets. Everyone, don't say my name and not mean it. As in, oh my God. That makes me seem ordinary and small and trite. And I am anything but. Fourth, keep the Sabbath. I'm not like Pharaoh. I give my people a day off. All my people, from the least to the greatest. And if you find you don't have time to take a day off, then you're serving another God. You're not serving me. Fifth, honor your parents. Take care of them when they're old. Obey them when you're young. Always treat them with respect. They're the ones who are to hold your family together and and to pass my word on to the next generation. Sixth, do not murder. I grant life and I take it away. It's not right for you to even wish that someone else was dead. Seventh, do not commit adultery. I alone bring a man and a woman together. I alone make a family. Don't break apart the integrity of what I've created. Eighth, do not steal. Don't take what belongs to another and don't cheat them out of what I've given them. Ninth, don't give false testimony. Don't speak lies or slander or gossip about another person. They're entitled to a good reputation or at least an accurate reputation. And especially in court, do not condemn the innocent and do not acquit the guilty by your testimony. Tell the truth. And tenth, do not covet what is not yours. It's not only your actions that matter, it's also your heart as well. Be grateful for what I've given you instead of craving what I haven't given you.
To covet is to be tempted to break most of the other commandments. And so Christopher Wright concludes, thus the commandments come full circle. To break the tenth is to break the first. For covetousness means setting our hearts and our affections on things that then take the place of God. He continues, it's not surprising then conversely that the whole culture or that a whole culture. Let me say that again. It's not surprising then conversely that a whole culture that systematically excludes the reality of the living God from the public domain as Western societies have been doing for generations also end up turning covetous self-interest into a socioeconomic ideology, rationalized, euphemized, and idolized. Knowing full well that you cannot serve God and mammon, we have deliberately chosen mammon and declared that a person's life does consist in the abundance of things possessed. And when society has so profoundly and deliberately abandoned the first and tenth commandments, the moral vacuum that results from the loss of the, all those. Let me try that again. When a society has so profoundly and deliberately abandoned the first and tenth, the moral vacuum that results from the loss of all those commandments in between soon follows. I think you get the point. I don't think I read it right. So we feel stressed. We feel fragmented. We feel discontent and lonely, and afraid, and we wonder why. Well, the Ten Commandments tell us why. Well, maybe we can't change the whole culture, but as God's people, we can and must be a counterculture. Enjoying and modeling a better way to live, a way given to us as a gift by our God, who's good and loving and faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that unlike just about any God at the time of Moses or even at the time of Jesus, you cared about your people enough to teach them how to live. Thank you that you have more fully helped us to understand your Old Testament law through the teaching of Jesus that through your Holy Spirit you've given us a desire to keep them and you've put them on our heart. Thank you that the Old Testament law is still there to instruct us and teach us and point us well in the direction of what it was that Jesus would ask of us when he came along. God, thank you for your grace that you first of all set your love on us and save us. And only then do you teach us how to live. May your heart expressed in your commands keep us may they protect us may they help us to be a people who are like a candle in the darkness enjoying your blessings and your ways and teaching other people a better way to live amen God is still creating a new people. And he's doing it through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who fulfilled the law for us. That's as we prepare for this wonderful communion service. Reverently sing number 94, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds.
view of the Ten Commandments. Again, the key biblical truth was the Ten Commandments are God's gracious words to form and keep his people. And as we've heard today, that that, those were gracious words, likewise communion is a time when we remember God's gracious act. It's a time when we pause to remember that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, so that we might live. The Lord's Supper is a time when we remember that shortly before he was crucified, Christ called his disciples together. As we heard today in the message, uh, it was a time to remember when the children had been saved. We had heard a couple Sundays ago, as Dick reminded us, of the time when the Israelites fleed from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, Remembrance is an important time in the life of a believer, an important aspect of communion as well. Shortly after Moses' death, Joshua and the Israelites, when they were being pursued and they came to the Jordan River, which was at flood stage during the time of the harvest, the minute the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant touched the river, it parted, allowing them safe passage. Joshua immediately instructed that 12 stones be carried from the river and placed on the bank to remind future generations and to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So when Jesus approached that time of Passover, the time of remembrance, he instructed Peter and John to find a particular man and to make arrangements for them to use his guest room. Part of their preparations for the Passover would also be to send them to the temple to have a lamb slaughtered for the supper. During the meal, Jesus, knowing what was to come, used this opportunity to incorporate into Passover some new features when he encouraged his disciples to use this meal as a remembrance of him. So communion is first a time of remembrance, but it's also a time of testimony where we publicly attest to the fact of the redemptive work of the Lord. We celebrated another public testimony last week when Robert was baptized. And baptism is is an event that once in a believer's life testifies to our acceptance of God's gracious gift. But while baptism happens usually only once, communion happens regularly. So when we actively take these symbols, the bread and the cup, we're testifying about our faith in the Lord and our belief that he was sent in an ultimate, gracious act to die for us. By accepting that gift, we testify 
that we are pure and made new by this gracious act. At CBC, we sometimes take the various elements individually to evidence the fact that God's gracious act was given for us personally. Thirdly, communion is a time which also symbolizes unity in the body of Christ because it's the finished work of the cross which draws us all together. So at CBC, we sometimes partake of elements at the same time to attest to the fact that we are one unified body. Because of this unity, at CBC, the Lord's Supper is open to all who believe. You don't have to be a member of our church. Scripture, however, does encourage that everyone examine him or herself before participating. So in Corinthians, Paul encourages us this way. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty for sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You ought to examine yourself before you eat this bread and drink from the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without recognizing the body of the Lord, eat and drinks judgment on himself. So we're admonished here to approach the Lord's table as a time of remembrance, of testimony, and of unity of believers with appropriate reflection on the work of Christ. And we're reminded that if we're not appropriately focused, if there are things in our life from time to time which prevent this appropriate reflection, then it's fine to let the cup and the bread pass before us and not take it. As part of our preparation today, we're going to take a few minutes, I'll ask the ushers to come forward, uh, and we'll take first a few minutes just of quiet reflection and then continue that reflection as the bread is being passed. And I would ask that you hold the bread and we will partake of that together. So please pause for a time where we reflect on the word of Christ.
The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, 